Get ready to be inspired by the great things happening in rural education. The Rural Scoop will bring you new ideas and innovative solutions, will dive into education issues, and will highlight what's working in your rural communities. You will hear from a variety of educators, administrators, professionals, and others who will provide relevant and engaging content in each episode. And now, serving up the scoop, here's your host, Dr. Melissa Sadorf. Welcome back, Rural Scoop listeners, for another opportunity to learn about what's going on with rural education. My guests today are Sarah White, the Director of Programs for Partners in Education, and Dr. Richard Daniel, the Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Education Forward Arizona. Thank you both for being with me today to talk about some of the things that you're doing with your work and some of the upcoming events that I know our rural leaders are going to want to know more about. I'm going to have you introduce yourselves to our listeners so that they get an idea of who you are and what you're doing. And Sarah, let's go ahead and start with you. For the last 25 years, I've worked in the field of public education as a teacher, a counselor, and a federal grant administrator. Currently, I oversee four gear-up grants and guide a leadership team of six and a staff of 250 strong toward the Partners for Education goal of all Appalachian students succeed. Through my role at Partners, I hold the high school through college piece of the pipeline, which allows me to work nationally to raise awareness and share our best practices for rural student success. Right now, I work directly with 41 school districts in southeastern Kentucky counties. Oh, you're busy. Yes. (laughs) A lot of irons in the fire. Richard, introduce us to you. Good morning. I'm Richard Daniel, and I'm Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer at Education Forward Arizona. Um, And I have the the opportunity to lead this organization from a strategic perspective, really looking at how do we identify partnerships and fundraising opportunities for the organization's growth, also our strategic organizational planning, and how do we look at programmatic Um, opportunities to increase scale. One of the things that we've been trying to do across this state is increase the scalability of our programmatic aspects, but also looking at the P20 continuum. And prior to my joining Education Forward Arizona four years ago, I was a higher education administrator for 30 years, um, serving in a lot of administrative roles across the country and 20 years at Arizona State University. That's exciting. And the nice thing is that you and I are both in Arizona. So we are. We we'll are. be able to talk about some Arizona specific things as well today. I'm excited about that. Well, let's go ahead and just dive into it. So we just introduced ourselves to the listeners, but I'd like to talk a little bit about the work of your respective organizations. So, Sarah, let's start with you talking about the work that you're doing. You quantified the numbers of things that you've got going on as the director of programs for partners in education, but give us a little bit more about what you're doing in, in your, in your work. So my overarching work is to ensure high school seniors enter into post-secondary education, academically prepared and financially able. So how I do that is by training and guiding a multitude of staff members who begin to work with students during middle school and follow those students to their first year of college. It's a scaffolded and complex approach, but it's very exciting. And Richard, what is Education Forward Arizona and what do you do in your role as the vice president and COO? Education Forward Arizona is a nonprofit that works with the P20 continuum 
one of the things that we're very involved in is looking at how do we take students from the early learning, uh, quality early learning, as well as getting through middle school, high school, post-secondary to the workforce. We're also responsible for the progress meters, the Arizona Educational Progress Meters. And one of the things that we do there is ensure that we're making inroads to the attainment of all of those progress meters in terms of rising those up. One of the challenges we've had is, as you've known for the, in the pandemic, is there's been some decline, and we'll talk a little more about that later. But my role is to ensure that we can programmatically operate the organization, that everything that we do from a programmatic perspective operationally, um, also in the field, that we're able to deliver and deliver those resources so that we can have impact across the state, particularly for our statewide attainment goal that we're getting toward completion in 2030. I'm excited to know more about the progress meter and some of the current research that you're able to pull into our conversation as we move forward. I know that's a metric system that a lot of the organizations across Arizona are really using to guide their work as well. So, Sarah, um, I know that Partners for Education has served Appalachian, Kentucky for the last 25 years, as you said, and that your mission there is evolving. Can you tell us a little bit about the partner history that uh, is in place and then also your plans moving forward into the future? So, yes, first, I will share that we're going through a name change. By the end of the summer, we will have fully transitioned to Partners for Rural Impact. And because the world exists around hashtags and acronyms these days, we are embracing that we will be known as PRI, Partners for Rural Impact. And as we launch PRI, I think it's important that uh, folks understand that place-based partnerships will remain the heart of our work. Uh, we've learned over the last 25 years of creating these opportunities and providing success for Appalachian students that in order to create sustainable change in rural places, it really means holding multiple roles. It means running the programs like TRIO, AmeriCorps, and Gear Up. And these programs are the heart of my work. But also it's important to build the civic infrastructure and develop a greater capacity for local agencies whose goals are very much aligned to our educational goals. They're working for thriving communities and we're working for sustainable citizenship, folks that have a living wage and that are able to really thrive in those communities. Richard, Education Forward Arizona is also dedicated to ensuring that students in Arizona have educational opportunities. Talk to us about how the organization came into being and what are the current uh, priorities that you're addressing at this time? Well, thank you for that question. I think one of the things that has happened is that we were able to bring three entities together. And as you know, bringing in organizations together is not an easy task. During the pandemic, one of the things that we began to do is have conversations as three entities. It was our former organization called Success Arizona, Expect More Arizona, and Achieve 60 AZ. Began to have discussions about what the future could look like if we collaborated more closely, if we worked closer together on projects, if we began to think about a different funding structure. And we worked with our funders um, and who were looking at how could we build capacity and how could we do things differently so we could have bigger impact. One of the greatest things, as you know, as an educator, is that in order to scale, you have to do things differently and you have to have greater impact. And how do we do those by making some bold decisions? And one of, the, one of the quick questions that we had is that 
as we began to think about this, we began to think about what the future could look like if we were a more robust organization that had more ability and a broader reach and had more talent that served the entire continuum. Each of us was working in different parts of the continuum, not necessarily that throughout the continuum. And over a course of 10 months in a planning structure and a strategic planning process, we came to the decision and our board decided that it was in the best interest of the organizations to merge and become one and College Success Arizona became the entity that remained and the other entities were acquired by us to move forward in the sense of being able to bring in the talent and the resources of their teams to broaden our ability. And this created an opportunity for us to think about what education could look like as we began to think about the discussions that had been that were being had about how we make progress instead of incremental progress, how do we make sustainable, scalable progress uh, moving forward? And, and it takes bold actions. And I think the business leaders were thinking about how do we bring these entities together so that we can begin to talk about the needs that have to happen. And as a result of the work that we're doing, you know, our mission is to advocate for and act on education improvements that advance the quality of education of life for all Arizonans. And one of the things that's important is that we want everyone to have, you know, a shot at education and a shot at the future. And to do that, it's important that we come together and we begin to look at our advocacy efforts, our programmatic efforts that we do in terms of schools, the work that we're trying to impact, the funding opportunities that we have to be able to make a difference. More importantly, you know, how do we become the voice of attainment? And when we talk about attainment, we're just not talking about post-secondary, we're talking about all levels of attainment. And I, I referenced earlier the progress meter goals, and that's part of attainment. All of those roll up to the future into the workforce. We can get a little bit more into that a little bit later, but that's part of what has happened. And as a result of that, we launched the organization. We came together a year ago when we began to kind of work together. And then we developed our strategic plan and launched it and put it out moving forward. Where we're working on five guiding principles when we think about equity, we think about engagement, data, innovation, and impact. These are the driving forces for us to begin to think about how, we, how we're going to make a difference in the state of Arizona to move education forward so that we can make a difference and help all students and families succeed. You know, what I find interesting is that both of your organizations really are moving into a new space where you're recognizing that there's a collective impact that can be had. I know, Richard, you're here in Arizona, and that's where you're focused specifically. And Sarah, you're moving from Appalachia to across the country. And I think that it's exciting work that you're both doing because there's a need to ensure that we're meeting and there's gaps to be filled. So it's really what an awesome opportunity to move the conversation from something that's a small local conversation to something that's much broader scale. Why is it important for listeners to know about the rurality of communities and their students, either here in Arizona or those areas that Partners for Education serves? Why would we not extenuate and celebrate what makes our region and our families unique? They're the rural life. Is, is the culture of who we are. Uh, at times, I think we've been prompted to diminish it, to rise above it, and to get out of it. But there's such a strength and beauty to both the land and our ways that has gotten us to this point. 
And I, and I also think that there, through those promptings to diminish it, has led to diminishing education. Because for so long, folks have been told, you need to go get an education. Um, and so it's changing the narrative, but celebrating the place and the beauty of the culture, I think. I think for me, um, celebrating rurality in Arizona is very important. I'm a rural student. I grew up in Superior, Arizona, so I know what it's like to grow up in a rural community. And the rural communities that I grew up around all were communities that we all um, are very proud of. Um, one of the things that I think that I think about when I look at rural Arizona is the leaders that have come from rural Arizona, particularly in education, as well as the leaders who've shaped the state of Arizona in a lot of ways, particularly from a political perspective. And I think one of the key things that has helped our state is the fact that when you bring people and you look at talent and you see the talent in rural Arizona, I see that as an asset. You know, I see that as those people bring something that others don't have. You know, I, I will always value the education I received in a rural community, in a public school system, and being able to take that and then obviously beyond into college and beyond in obviously being able to continue my, my graduate studies and so forth. But I think one of the key things is that we don't want to forget that rural Arizona and rural America offers so many opportunities to be successful. But the question today is, is that we need to make sure they are aware of what's out there. And some of the things that I've done since I came back, because I was out of state as the university administrator, when I came back to Arizona four years ago, is to begin my work back in rural Arizona, begin doing the things and serving, working with people like Len Lineberry before ISOC was started, beginning to talk about the importance of what schools are doing and how we could help serve them. Because I know firsthand as this product of rural Arizona, what the impact can be when students have opportunities. And I think that's one of the things that's important to me. You both mentioned how place-based assets really play a part in the success of, of those rural students and being able to tap into them is vital to ensuring that we are opening those opportunities. But during the last couple of years, especially during the pandemic, there has been a highlight brought to light around barriers that exist for some of our rural students in those rural places, and especially in terms of equity and access. Um, what are your, your thoughts about some of those issues that need to be addressed? And then beyond that, why is it important for our listeners to know about when focusing on the opportunities and challenges that rural learners face as they go through K-12 and beyond um, and forge those those careers, either through college or technical training. So I've thought about um, I've thought about this question, and actually, about a month pre-pandemic, I met with a group of rural college access providers at a national convening, and through about a ninety-minute workshop, we talked about the big buckets where they really felt that they had to stand in the gap differently, where they believed that a rural lens had to be applied to uh, provide the same kind of services to students. And so I think it's important to understand that um, the pandemic certainly shined a light on it and highlighted it perhaps, but it's been, it was there before. And I think we all know that. 
Um, so as we look at these, there is um, the lack of an access to qualified teachers and rigorous course, courses or curriculum. There's an access, to, uh, a lack of access to out of school learning with the transportation. There's a uh, lack of access to college campuses and to college courses and the whole college culture that may live in some communities or on the fringe of some cities that uh, students in those areas are just prone to be able to see. Uh, there's an access to a community-wide college going, a lack of access to a community-wide college going culture. There is a lack of access to jobs across multiple pathways. In our areas, the jobs that students talk to us about first really live in those school districts. I want to be a teacher or I want to be mm -hmm. the principal when I grow up. And as, as we continue to work with them, we see that it becomes broader than that, but it still says to what they can see in the community. It may move to the hospital or it may move to an agency in the community but there is still a lack of understanding about the multiple pathways of jobs and careers out there. And then lastly, we all know there's just a lack of access to broadband uh, in some of our communities, literally, that we still do not have good access to networks and uh, opportunities to connect digitally. And I think my the second part of your question uh, is to notice that all of these are really around geography. There is no disconnect to the ability of our students, only the access to. And I just think that's so important for America to understand. To build on Sarah's answers, I think one of the key things that we talk about is that, you know, the access to all those pieces that she talked about were very critical that students did not, students and families didn't have access to. And we're not necessarily aware of some of the things that were uh, offered for students as they begin to look at the future. One of the things that we felt early on during the pandemic is that we felt that there was going to be a shift in terms of post-secondary attainment. So we did some surveys across the state of Arizona in 2020, right, in that first year of the pandemic to get a sense from parents about what they were feeling about their students in terms of their preparation to go to college, about whether they're going to change their decisions about going to college, what are some of the things that they maybe were not getting. It's very clear that non-academic support was high on the list that students were not receiving during the pandemic, that they weren't having access to those individuals that could help them be able to deal with some of those issues that they were having with social emotional learning, mental health, some of those decisions that become very challenging for students one of the other things that we were asking questions about is the preparation is that do parents feel like the students were going to be prepared to go to college at that point in time? The likelihood two thirds of the parents at that point in time felt that their students were prepared um, to go to college as because of the fact that it was toward the end of the pandemic, I mean, toward the end of the school year as they were completing that they felt like maybe they had most of what they needed to move forward. Um, we also were concerned about whether or not they had the right information or they had access to the right information about going to college. And there was a lot of concern about that is that they didn't necessarily understand if they had the adequate information about college choice, about information, preparing for college, all of those things. We did that study again, that survey in 2021, and it was a little bit more difficult situation in terms of the parents. Parents felt like the students were not necessarily going to be, were as prepared for college. Um, 
because they lost out more during that second year. Um, they felt like the students were going to have a more difficult time because they didn't have the non-academic supports that they needed. So we began to see that there was a discrepancy of those students from that first year to the second year um, because we began to see that there were obviously a much more um, differences of time that have passed and the students were not getting that support and the services that they needed. As Sarah talked about is when you don't get the access to those services and don't understand how to navigate and there's not people there to help you. And those are the things that we found across the state in rural Arizona is that we found that there were less and less people that were available to help and the resources weren't there. And particularly when you didn't have broadband in some of the areas, as you know, in some of our rural tribal communities that are so spread apart, didn't have the resources that, or, or the places that they could go to. And obviously you see the disruptive learning that happened as a result of that and students not moving along. Um, and I think as we think about the future, we also have seen entry into post-secondary enrollment has decreased significantly the last two years, came back a little bit this last fall, but we still see significant drop-off in our community college systems here in Arizona. And that's hurt significantly, particularly in the rural areas, but also um, in the metro areas even have seen some more significant um, declines in enrollment. Along those same lines, the profile of the rural student traditionally is thought of as being pretty homogeneous. However, we know that rural is becoming increasingly diverse. How does this impact your work, that diversity of the students that we find in our rural communities? So this is an area here at Partners for Education that that I have really focused my attention on training my staff and really educating myself. When I think about services to students, we really have to understand this ourselves before we can help our students and families understand it. And I think one of the facts that has been realized um, is the fact of how distinctly different rural areas are. Um, this may be even more difficult for the folks who live in rural. There is often this belief that we are rural, and so therefore all rural must be the way that we look and the way that we live. And so um, we spent a lot of time helping our staff and hopefully our students understand that our rule is our rule, but it's not necessarily the, necessarily the American rule. Um, and as you said, there's so many myths out there. Um, you know, we here work a lot around rule is synonymous with white. We are, um, we are predominantly white, probably 92% white in the area of school districts that we serve, but we do have diversity. And so I work really hard to make sure that those diverse communities are not just blended in, but that they stand distinctly and that programming opportunities and that the parents and families receive what they need for their culture and their identity as well role is often synonymous with conservative. So we work really hard to stand bipartisan and to make sure that we're doing what's best 
for our students and our friends with all political leaders that can help us with that. Rural Americans don't care about the news, and that is so inaccurate. We care deeply, and so we work with our staff to ensure that the students are well aware of what's going on nationally as well as what's going on in our communities. And probably the one that we work the hardest against is that rural Americans don't value education. And uh, we do surveys with our parents. We do focus groups with their parents and with their families, and they value education deeply. So wool is diverse. Um, and my stance is that we have to help our part of rural understand that not everyone that's rural looks like us and approach it just as we would any other um, any other topic or any other thing that we're discussing with our families, our staff, and our students as we do our work. I would agree with Sarah in, in the sense that it's um, rural is not homogenous in that sense. And the diversity in Arizona is a little different. I think we have more diversity in terms of the ethnic diversity. We have also uh, more diversity in the sense of how we're set up because we're pretty large. If you look at the tribal communities, I think one of the things that you find is tribal communities are very different. You know, you look at the Navajo Nation, very spread out. It's in three different states. You know, we're working more closely with tribal communities than we have ever before. And it's very intentional because we understand the need and we're trying to understand how to support them. Uh, we work with partners um, across the state who begin to look at how do we impact those diverse communities, particularly in those rural communities, to make sure we're making a difference. Business partners who have operations there, operations like Freeport Macmoran, who have concentrated efforts in these communities and fill trying to understand how to create sustainable communities so that they can sustain the communities and people can live there. One of the things that we're focused on is actually spending time in those places and understanding those places from the perspective of those who live there. I think one of the challenges many times is that you can make assumptions that you know about these communities, but unless you spend time there, unless you get to know the community and they get to know you, it becomes very different. I think that's one of the things that we're doing. And we have staff who live in some rural communities across the state who work in our community impact teams that begin to work that we also have staff that travel from um, our central Phoenix office that is state, we're a statewide organization that travel from our, our offices here to these communities on a regular basis and spend time there to understand how to serve them. What are the needs that they have and how can we help them in the particular areas and the programs that we're delivering? I think that's one of the key things is spending time getting to know these communities and understanding that there are differences and every town and every community is different, but appreciating those differences. Many times people will, will not, will come into those towns and won't appreciate the beauty of what that community is like because maybe they didn't grow up there, can't relate to it, but you need to understand how you can begin to embed yourself there. And those are things that are critical. You have to be able to come in and they have to see that it, you're genuine and authentic about making a difference for them and helping their communities. I think that's one of the things that's very important to me um, and the team when we're out in these communities serving is understanding and listening goes back to those assets that are in place in those communities that you can tap into. Speaking of those business partners, 
Um, let's let's talk a little bit about economic development. Why is college so important for students in those rural areas, especially for those communities that don't have a lot of economic development? And additionally, can you share your thoughts about successful practices that you've seen that focus on community cohesiveness or alternatives to that brain drain we hear about from rural places that uh, operate in tandem with those initiatives to develop jobs or collaborate with existing industries in those communities? When I think about college, I think um, our overarching goal is all Appalachian students succeed. And so I do believe that there's sometimes a disconnect with the rural message around how important college is. I think college is important for all students. Um, coming out of the pandemic, there's been some discussion around the value of a two-year or four-year educational degree. So we're battling that right now, but I just um, am concerned, I guess, about the, um, there's a disconnect between college and the groundswell of trades opportunities that are out there right now. And I think we have to begin to align on that. It's not either or. And so that's one of the conversations that I think leaders need to have is um, where does that come together? Where can we align on that? And actually um, I'm foreshadowing a little bit, but I'm doing a session with some of the uh, gear up folks, some of the trio folks at the Rural College Access and Success Summit around that, the relevance of a college degree um, and how we can help families and students get that message on the relevance of that. So, um, but I think um, right now, one of the most positive things to come out of um, COVID for us in Southeastern Kentucky, and maybe just for some rural parts in general, was um, the ability to work globally from anywhere, kind of like we're mm -hmm. doing right now. You know, we're not having this conversation in a room together. And so um, our students got to experience that at Partners for Education, we took great efforts in connecting them, not just with each other, in counties connected to each other, but trying to find opportunities for them to be mentored um, or to connect with other students across the nation. And so, you know, I think the first step was learning that can be done and that you can live in your small town community, but perhaps work on a federal project with the United States government. Um, and so that's that's one of the things that we're really beginning to work on now. A lot of our students don't want to leave the beauty and the safety of Southeastern Kentucky. And, and I sure want to understand that, but they also want their work to be more uh, nationally focused. There's great jobs in tourism and um, in some of our skills and trades that are unique to the mountains and unique to central or excuse me eastern Kentucky and some students will will still embrace those and they'll embrace going to teach in the school that their mom and grandmother and aunts taught in I I did that for a while I was you know I wanted to come back and teach in those same school buildings that I had grown up in. But um, there's also now this opportunity to know, and when I come back here and buy my house and settle, I can still work with Richard Daniel in Arizona, or, you know, there's just opportunities to share knowledge that did not exist, or we had not tapped into. I guess it always existed, but we had no idea the simplicity of making it happen that we do now. What I would add to that is I think it's important from a business perspective, economic development is to work in partnership with those entities 
that are employers in those communities and help them understand um, the technical side. Many of these employers are looking for a workforce that is educated, that needs skills. They're also looking to invest. And one of the things that we've done when you're talking about best practices, begin to understand how to help them pipeline those students into the process to identify them, providing them scholarships and resources to go get the training they need to come back then and work in those communities. A lot of times people talk about, I wanna go back home, but you can't go back home if there's no jobs there. So the issue becomes creating those jobs and working with those entities and those businesses and those corporations that are there to say, how do we sustain ourselves here? How do we bring back the talent so that the brain drain doesn't leave, it comes back, it goes to get educated or gets educated in those communities. If there's a local community college, or there's a university that's doing a partnership with the local community college for training, an additional degree attainment, but working there to understand how do we keep them here so that we benefit. When you, when you stay there, the community benefits and the quality of life goes up, the opportunity, the sustainability, all of those things in the civic life of those individuals become much more enriched because of, because of that experience. And those are the things that we're trying to do is figure out how do we help those communities be sustainable by helping them help themselves um, with partners? This is not something that we can do alone. All of our work that we do is through partnerships. Everything that we are able to accomplish is because we have a partner in that community, a funding partner, someone who believes that we can work collectively to make a difference in those communities. And those are things I think that are very important for sustainable communities to continue. You know, many of us, you know, have seen our communities change and they're, they've adapted. You know, the community I grew up in um, is very different today than the community it was when I was a kid, you know, because there was a strong mining community that was open, the mine shut down, it's then had to shift and they had to be, be able to pivot. Today, it's a different kind of community, but the mining industry is coming back. But that doesn't always happen in some of our communities. Industry doesn't come back, but you need to find the economic development piece that will help them. And because we don't want these communities to go away, we want them to sustain themselves for a long period of time. And what's interesting, and I think the pandemic highlighted also the fact that you have workers that are moving back into a rural community for a way of life. Mm-hmm. And they are because of, of connectivity to jobs in other places, able to then have that quality of life while maintaining that job that connects them to Washington, D.C. or L.A. or Chicago. Uh, and, and I think that's something that uh, we're going to start seeing more and more of as well. No, exactly. Well, and so, Sarah, thank you for foreshadowing our next topic of conversation, uh, which is the upcoming Rural College Access and Success Summit, which is going to be here in Arizona, in Scottsdale, April 24th through 27th. Um, So if you would both let us know what is the summit, who's going to be there, and then give us some of the highlights that if you attend, you'll be able to expect to see. 
So the cool kids are going to be there. Everyone <laughs> kind of wants to join us uh, if, if it's all possible. Uh, I'm going to defer to Richard a little bit on uh, the overarching goals, and, and I'll talk a little bit about the um, practitioner stance, because that's really where I have uh, focused my energy. And I think if you are a practitioner around students, around education, around rural There'll be a track around social emotional learning, um, some out of school programming. We've also got a track that's really around librarians and um, helping maybe situate libraries as the as a part of the community, a community center perhaps. There's a STEM track, uh, lots of great STEM opportunities going on out there. We also have some affinity learning groups that will have a little bit longer time. And one of those is the one that I mentioned before, and it's really for folks doing federal uh, sponsor, federally sponsored programming or any kind of out of school programming. On a, on a deeper level. So um, there's lots of opportunities and I'm going to pass it off to Richard, who has really been one of the chairs of the planning committee to talk about the overarching goals. I think one of the beauties of this Rural College Access and Success Summit is that we're bringing together people from across the country um, in a setting where you have teachers and principals, superintendents, education leaders, legislators, and other nonprofit leaders beginning to think about what are the strategies that we can ensure that youth across this country are being able to have that successful transition from high school to college and into the career? I think one of the key things is that we don't want to lose sight of the fact it's a pathway. You know, education is a pathway to a career, to the workforce. And being able to go back to what you said, Melissa, is that maybe someday you are now able to go back because you can work remotely. You can do things that maybe weren't thought of before the pandemic. And that's the beauty of this conference is bringing together these bright minds from across the country who can talk about what's happened, particularly some of the focus areas are gonna be during the pandemic. How did you pivot during the pandemic to serve the students in those communities, to make a difference, to make sure that you were still moving forward? We all had to shift. Our organization had to shift significantly from being much more driven in person to now being driven through you know, digital and virtual kinds of experiences. One of the things that we're also going to have is the opportunity to hear from some keynote speakers, Jeff Canada, who's the founder of the Harlem Children's Zone, to talk about why it's important, obstacles that youth are facing this day and age in terms of the challenges socially and emotionally, how they can provide supportive educational environments so they can pursue that American dream. I think we all talk about the American dream and what does that mean to us? We'll have one of our plenary speakers who has been a coach in the Native American communities for over 40 years. There was a Netflix series on him, Coach Mendoza, Raul Mendoza, you know, basketball or nothing, and talk about you know, his experiences and why he chose to be a coach and a teacher and a counselor in Native American communities for over 40 years, with the impact he's had on the lives of students. Opportunities to hear from Jimmy Wayne, talk about his experiences and what he's done in his life and how he's changed. And, his own personal experiences, both as an artist, a singer, and an author, and to think about the kinds of things that he's contributed to the community. These are just some opportunities to hear from people, but we have more sessions and really focused on the strategy and the practical perspective of how do we take practice and how do we use that and be able to make a difference in every day in the work that we do. I think one of the key things that we're all facing today is we understand that we have to elevate the work so significantly to make an impact so we can have 
much greater, you know, not incremental change, but significant changes. And that's what I talked about earlier with the progress meter goals is that those goals have illuminated for Arizona that we're not necessarily getting to where we need to be in the areas of third grade reading, eighth grade math, high school graduation, post-secondary enrollment, post-secondary attainment, all of these things, and not to mention teacher pay, we're not there, we're not there either where we need to be. These are very important things to us, but we need to make a difference and figure out how do we do this? How can we come together and how can we, as a system of educators, make an impact and then take this back to our home states, our home communities, where we can begin to figure out how do we take these things that we learn and these tools and the toolkits and make a difference. And that's what I'm hoping to hear um, from my colleagues. And that, you know, I, I've learned a lot in the you know, over the last three years, our partnership with Berea um, has been a great partnership and looking forward to our continued work. While we are hosting in Arizona this year, it's important for folks to know that I think there's less than eight states not represented. So it definitely is a national convening. There'll be folks from um, whatever, 45 or so states in the room. We first did this conference or this summit in Lexington, Kentucky about six years ago. And there is a comment that I remember that probably shapes um, folks' experiences when they're there. And it was someone on their first um, evaluation or suggestions that said, it's the first time that I've been in a room and I haven't had to take the first five minutes to explain the context of where I work. Everyone that comes together <laughs> understands rule and you don't have to spend part of your networking time explaining that to the group that you're with. And so that might um, also help folks understand what to expect once they get there. And I think both of you mentioned it, but anytime that you have a group of people with common purpose that get together, you're able to have some impactful conversations, you're able to network, you're able to grow your own toolbox. And so it's going to be an amazing opportunity for these rural communities, these rural educators to come together and really grow their practice. I'm excited and I hope that we get a lot of people here in Arizona that I'm going to be able to network with uh, to grow education here in Arizona and across our region and our country for uh, rural students moving forward. Now, speaking of that, those things that we're facing today, as we look ahead, what do both of you see happening with rural education, whether it's Arizona or across the country? And do you have any goals for rural education that you'd like to share with our listeners? I think one of the things when we think about our organization want to kind of get back to some of the goals that we have, particularly as it relates to, I talked about the attainment goal. So when I talked about the attainment goal, I was referencing the statewide attainment goal that we set back in 2017 to get to 60% of the population by 2030 that would hold some high-level credential associates or bachelor's degree um, ages 25 to 64. But we also understand that attainment just doesn't get to that point. It also happens when I talked about you know, three and four-year-olds having quality early learning. We talked about third grade reading, talked about eighth grade math. All of those um, progress meter goals that we're responsible for all roll up to attainment. And that's a goal that we have is to increase the attainment P20 so we can be successful. And that's something that we're working collectively. Again, it's not just our responsibility, it's a responsibility of the entire state to figure out how we can help make a difference there. 
We also have you know, an important goal of closing the achievement gaps at all levels. We want people to achieve, and it kind of goes again back to the progress meters, but we want people to achieve at all levels to be successful. You know, we talk about the fact that we want students to be able to have choices, but if they're not achieving, the choices then become limited. I think students need to achieve at high levels so they have great choices and they can begin to choose what they want to do when they're ready to do that, you know, after high school. But they also need to be prepared. That transition, that preparedness in high school and college and career readiness pieces are so critical to their future success. And we want to make sure that that's happening. I think one of the other things that we have as goals as an organization is to advocate for state level funding to meet the need that those that have the most need. And that's the challenge. Tremendous need in, in all education. Um, but those that need the most need should be provided the resources they need to be successful. Um, and I think one of the things that was illuminated earlier by Sarah was the fact that the quality, the number of teachers and having access to quality teachers is so critical in a position right now that there's so many needs for teachers and, and not having enough of them to be able to help students be successful in their learning process. And I think the last thing I would say is that we wanna make sure that we have business and industry and education come together. That's the work that we're doing is making sure that business understands their role in this process. They have a vital role and a critical role to play in the success of our students and their ability to be successful in education and into the workforce. So to build on what Richard said, I think nationally, and I don't know that these are the national goals, but this is where I would like to see and where I think some of the national conversations must be headed. We've talked about the value of education, and I think that that's a statement everyone in America could have a conversation about. We really need to start talking about the value of the educator. Um, in some of the research and work that I'm doing now, the field of education, even at the college level, but most definitely we see in the K through 12 level, is um, depleted. Folks are feeling overworked, under-resourced, undervalued, underappreciated. Um, and, and we've been doing some research around that just uh, in the work that I do, and I think that nationally, uh, there has to be some conversations around that. And then I also think that we have to get away from the either or around credentialing, degrees, and work experience. Uh, coming out of COVID in, in this part of rural America that I live in, students worked. And so now to let go of those jobs, to go back to school full time and uh, the campus that I work on, and then I live on about 12 miles away and there's a regional university right there where I live. And I can tell you that there, especially enrollment has not increased to the level that it was. I don't see the student interactions of playing hacky sack and just walking around campus with backpacks that I used to have to stop in crosswalks. So th there has to be a way to allow students the flexibility of a different lifestyle than being a full-time student living on a college campus. So I think those are uh, a couple of national conversations that we'll have to have. 
for our organization in my role, I'm really looking forward and have the goals for me and my team to provide some national technical assistance to um, federally funded programs. You know, we've done so much work and have spent the last year developing some really strong operating procedures from everything from, okay, you have the grant. Now, what are you going to do with it in the first 90 to 120 to the first year? And then certainly around best practices in programming, best practices around um, what works in rules. So that's some of my personal goals. And as an organization for PRI, Partners for Rural Impact, I think our two largest goals going forward, in addition to the ones that we have, are really around fostering some rural, some national rural and, and networks where folks can come together. The summit is a great example of that, but um, we would like to see things live in between the summits, maybe just some, um, I don't know, some listservs, whatever it might take, so that rural conversations and networks are organically happening uh, more often than now. And then uh, advancing a rural policy agenda, uh, because we realize that as the policy agenda goes, so goes rule. We can all work as hard as we can, but without a national policy uh, and advancing that and someone standing in the gap for that, our work is really in the moment and won't create the future that we're looking for. If anyone wants more information about what we talked about or about the Rural Summit, how can they get in touch with both of you? So my email is very simple. It's my last name, first initial, W-H-I-T-E. S. Whites at Berea, B as in boy, E-R-E-A dot E-D-U. So I'm Sarah White, and I work for Partners for Education at Berea College. And if you Google any part of that, you will find uh, enough links to get you to me and our organization. And you can reach me at rdaniel at educationforwardarizona.org. And again, Richard Daniel and I work for Education Port Arizona. Looking forward to connecting with you at the Rural Summit. Thank you both for being here and speaking with me today. I'm glad that we had an opportunity to highlight the summit and then both of the organizations and the work that you are doing for rural education. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Rural Scoop. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe, or even leave us a comment. You can check out previous episodes of The Scoop wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Sadorf so you never miss a new release. See you next time for more great discussions about rural education. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.